Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded at the Center for Missouri Studies in Columbia and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Ross, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from our Missouri. In honor of the state's 200th birthday, our Missouri will feature a series throughout 2021 entitled Bicentennial Book Club, which discusses award-winning publications that detail the state's diverse history, as well as the stories behind the stories featured within their pages. Our guest today is Joel P. Rhodes. He holds a PhD in history from the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and presently serves as a professor of history at Southeast Missouri State University. He is the author of several books, including The Vietnam War and American Childhood, Growing Up in a Land Called Honolulu: The 60s and the Lives of American Children, The Voice of Violence, The Performative Violence as Protest in the Vietnam Era, and our focus for today, a Missouri Railroad pioneer, The Life of Lewis Houck. Welcome to our Missouri, Joel. Thank you, Sean. Now, thinking about this project that, that you pursued a, a couple of years ago, tell us about the origins of that of that overall book project. Well, I had just uh, moved down here to southeast Missouri from Kansas City, and I was really struck by the fact that there's this really prominent figure, Lewis Houck, that nobody had really ever uh, researched and written about. So I thought that there was a, a real gap in the literature there. So I embarked on on this biography, it's the only biography I've ever written and maybe the only one I will ever write. Now, as you were kind of thinking about writing that biography and looking at Lewis Houck, you know, how did you come to focusing on him? What documents did you look at? What archives did you visit to kind of build the story of his life? Well, I, I noticed that there are a number of of events in Southeast Missouri history, which really came to define the region, that developed the region. The university is one of those, the railroads is another, uh, the Little River Drainage District. And Lewis Houck's fingerprints were all over those. And so it it's really beneficial uh, and advantageous for me because the Houck papers are here at the university. So there is a huge archival collection of all of Houck's business papers and the, the family is still here, uh, various parts of the family. Houck's home, Elmwood, is still occupied as a family residence, you know, after 200 years. So there, was, there were a lot of resources, and it was very practical because they're right here in Cape Girardeau. Now, in looking at, at Lewis Houck's life, uh, certainly one of the constant themes is really focusing in on, you know, his railroad career, his involvement with the railroad. Uh, but you give a little before history of that, obviously, some early history of his life. Uh, and he comes from a German family. Uh, how did this German identity and heritage really, really shape his early life and his later life, too? Well, it's interesting because as a German um, growing up in Illinois and then moving to, to Cape Girardeau, he is really out of step with the German community in a number of ways. Politically, um, he's a Democrat. 
which is, is odd. And that puts him uh, kind of outside of the German community in Illinois. He's also a teetotaler, which I found was interesting. Generally don't associate uh, Germans with, uh, with folks that don't uh, enjoy beer. Uh, he was a unionist, though, and fiercely loyal to uh, to the union. He's a Jacksonian politically. And oddly enough, speaking of being kind of out of step with the German community, Hauk is not very frugal. Again, that's another kind of stereotype we have with the German community. Um, Hauk notoriously never pays his bills as, as a matter of philosophy. He always thought it was better to have more money in your pocket as opposed to uh, to good credit. But the thing that, that really stood out to me about Lewis is that I think his essence is a historian. He, I mean, he sees himself as a historian. He thinks like a historian. And what that means, I think, is that he is constantly someplace else in his mind. He's, he's in the past. He, he's, he's thinking about great battles and great leaders and, and these historical moments. And I found it fascinating that his name is actually Louis Napoleon Hauk, um, which I, I think fits with his demeanor. And I make the argument in the book that I think it's this the soul, the spirit of a historian that actually really motivates him to get into railroading because he sees it in one way as this chance for him to really live out, to act out these, these great historical events that he's only read about up until this time, that he's only researched. Now, you talk about writing there, and before we jump into, obviously, the railroads, um, he has a very interesting writing and even publishing career um, before he even comes down into Southeast Missouri. So talk a little bit about this writing career in the newspaper business. Well, most of his early writings, as a matter of fact, all of his early writings are, are legal. Hauk by trade is a lawyer and by all accounts, a, a pretty shrewd one. Um, and so he had written a number of legal briefs and uh, treatises on, on the law. But he, like I said before, always really had a passion for history. And it was really during his most productive years of railroading, really around the turn of the 20th century when Hauk is about 60 years old. Uh, he's operating three railroads simultaneously. He's president of the Board of Regents at the university that he embarks on what's the most substantial uh, period of writing for, for him. And he writes a five volume history of territorial, territorial and colonial Missouri, the, the Spanish years uh, in particular. And that, that's where his, his life as a historian really, it transcends just reading about history to actually writing history. And he has a really fascinating um, research um, philosophy or methodology, I should say, is probably a better way to, to put that. Because how can't speak Spanish and can't understand it, he contracts with a historian up in uh, Wisconsin, as a matter of fact, who had some connections to the Spanish archives in Seville and also in Cuba. And so Hauk would write in English a list of documents that he wanted to see from either Spain or Cuba, and he would send them to Wisconsin. And this professor there at the Wisconsin Historical Society would translate them into Spanish, send them to either Spain or Cuba. The archivists in those two places then would look through the archives, try to find the documents, the material how wanted. They would send them then back to Wisconsin where they would be translated into English 
and sent to to Hauk. This is an incredibly laborious process, and it takes years. But that's how Hauk was able to accomplish uh, and write uh, the definitive work on colonial Missouri at the at the time without actually traveling to those archives. And because Hauk's uh, handwriting was so atrocious, I mean, notoriously poor. How understood that he couldn't write anything out in longhand and have it be understood. So he then had to write out these histories, these five volumes, these five books, and have the and then he would dictate them to to his secretary, and she would use a typewriter then to to type them. And this sounds like a, really some heavy lifting. But I, I think these were probably the happiest years of his life. He really, really enjoyed this, hanging around Elmwood, this, this castle that he lived in, and talking history is what he called it. That's fascinating to think about, the, the as you said, the laborious profit process of, of getting those materials and getting them sent back. Uh, looking at these histories, looking at his writings on, on Missouri, especially under Spanish influence, and thinking of yourself as a historian, you know, what takes are, are, are is he coming up with in terms of is he writing a very balanced approach to this history? Is he kind of edging on the side of hagiography or or boosterism? How is he per, portraying this history? You know, in the in the grand scheme of things, he's a product of his time. So I mean, it's it's not as balanced perhaps as uh, as what we would consider today. There's no notion of social history that it's not a people's history. It's a it's a political and economic and military uh, history. But unlike his railroading, when it comes to writing, Hauk is really a perfectionist, and, and I found that fascinating. His attention to detail when it comes to history is far greater than it is to, to railroading uh, engineering, where he never really masters that skill. But for a self-taught historian, I, I gotta say, I, I'm impressed. He knew enough to know what he didn't know. And so he would consult with people who were uh, who were experts, or at least he perceived them to be experts in uh, in the field. He didn't know much about Native American history, for instance. So he reached out to Thomas Beckwith, who was an amateur archaeologist here in uh, in the region, who had an extensive collection. And so how tried to balance? I mean, he he took steps to to fill in the gaps to to strengthen where his narrative was was weakest. But again, you know. You can you know, oftentimes criticize, you know, the parts he left out or or things. But at the time, you know, he was writing something. He was breaking new ground. Nobody had ever done this uh, before. And for, you know, for somebody who didn't have this type of training, I walk away impressed with, with his writings. Lewis Hauk didn't come to Cape Girardeau, to Southeast Missouri, until really his late 20s. Right. Yet once he comes to the region, he is quite a significant booster and supporter of the area what many consider to be the father of Southeast Missouri, why was he such a strong booster? Why was he so supportive of the region? Lewis always was looking for an authentic sense of place, if that makes sense. And wherever it was, he kind of wore out his welcome in Southern Illinois for a number of political and economic reasons. And so Cape Girardeau allowed him to, to, to make a fresh start here. And he threw himself into, um, you know, service to, to the community and boosting the community. However, one of the mythologies uh, of how, one of the parts of, of Cape Girardeau and Southeast Missouri folklore is that he was selflessly uh, a booster of the region. 
that that's not true. Uh, Hauk's support for the region went just as far out as his own self-interest and no further. Hauk's real genius, I think, is his ability to, to integrate what's good for his private interest with the public good of the region. Whatever is a, is a victory for Lewis Hauk is a victory for, for the region, for Southeast Missouri. And I probably I think probably the greatest example of this is the Little, Little River Drainage District, which which drains the swamps here in southeast Missouri. This is something that revolutionized uh, the region and ultimately was was a tremendous positive for southeast Missouri. But how was an adamant opponent uh, of that? He was not a supporter, and it was primarily because it was going to hurt his own individual land holdings and his own business interests. And he fought tooth and nail against the Little River Drainage District. And it, it turned out he was completely wrong about this. But this notion that Hauk always pursued what was best for the region, you know, that doesn't really, that doesn't hold up. It's fascinating to consider as, as you as you play the perspective there on, on his own vision versus what is going on in the area. Obviously, the, the, the one of the biggest things he's connected to is the railroads and his development of a railroad network um, really separate from the from the main lines that are running through the region, which are you know the St. Louis Iron Mountain and, and what was later the Fulton and uh, Cairo lines. You know, how did he come to modernize the region through these railroading efforts, and you know how why why pursue railroads really? Well, this is a fascinating story, and kind of the the beauty of it is that how is this. There's, there's an innocent quality to it, that he's this accidental railroader. They, he comes into this in his 40th year. He's 40 years old when he decides to do this. And there's some truth to that. Hauk was a lawyer, had no idea about what railroading entailed. And true to his nature, he read some books about it and thinks, how hard can this be? And so in his own words, he cogitates and he dreams about railroading. And what I took that to mean is that he dreamed his historical dreams. This was an opportunity for him to, to leave his mark. I mean, just like the great leaders that he admired in history, the conquerors and the titans of, of industry, this was an opportunity for him to do that. But Hauk's not a Pollyanna. I mean, he is a shrewd and very clever businessman and a very, very calculating one. And the reality is that he had married uh, Mary Hunter Gibney, who was the only surviving child of the two largest landowning families in, in Cape Girardeau, in the region. And so the reality for, for Mary and Lewis was that they were cash poor, but land rich. And so anything that Lewis could do to accentuate his land holdings, he was going to do that. And anything he could do to ameliorate the fact that they didn't have much liquid capital, Hauk was looking for business schemes that, that would help him in that regard. And that's how he came upon on railroading. He had tried a, a number of business ventures prior to that, but railroading to him held out the most promise. For one thing, Cape Girardeau, as you mentioned, and the region had been kind of left out of these initial trunk lines. And so there's all this untapped potential here. If you bring the railroads into Southeast Missouri, now suddenly everybody's land values goes up. So Hauk's interested in that because they've got thousands of acres. Um, and uh, most of that is, is swampland and it's virtually worthless. So if you bring the railroads here, a rising tide's gonna lift all boats, so to speak. 
There's also all of this timber down here. I mean, you've got cypress and hickory, all these hardwoods, and this is an untapped resource that nobody really has, has pursued. And how is in communication with a number of very visionary businessmen, T.J. Moss, William Brown, and they convince Hauk that there's a fortune to be made here, cutting this timber, making you know railroad ties, you know, making lumber out of it. But you got to get a railroad here first because nothing can happen unless you have transportation. And so Hauk sees the potential of connecting this swampland to these national, to these global markets. And as a matter of fact, it's because of the Hauk lines that within a generation, some of the largest sawmills in the country, if not the world, are here. Himmelberger and Harrison, uh, Gideon Anderson, uh, you know, McCormick Deering, they have huge facilities here, which still, you know, the remnants kind of dot the landscape in, uh, in the region. So Hauk saw um, a money-making potential there as well. And he always understood that the, the big trunk lines would eventually buy these feeder lines. So Hauk understands that his railroads are never going to be the dominant railroads in the region. But from the very beginning, he understands that there's the potential that somebody like Jay Gould is going to pay him a fortune for these. And so he makes the decision to, to get into railroading. And I love the fact that, you know, he has this conversation with Mary, you know, just, and I, I love to envision this in my mind. Here's how he's 40 years old. He's a lawyer, knows nothing about railroading. And he's trying to pitch this idea to his wife who, who owns the land, actually. I mean, she's going to be the biggest investor in this. And He's explaining to her, I assume he lays out his case, much like a lawyer would, you know, hey, there's all the positives that we can, we can uh, achieve here. And I'm sure she cross-examined him and said, yeah, but you don't know anything about how to do this. And he probably said, you know, how hard could it be? I mean, it can't be that hard. I can, I can figure this out. And so in 1880, he, he pitches this very interesting deal and for 15 very unremarkable miles of track between Cape Girardeau and Delta, eventually how builds that into a 500 mile kind of provincial railroad empire. And to, to address your, your question specifically, uh, finally, what this does is it revolutionizes the region. It brings Cape Girardeau and Southeast Missouri into the 20th century. It brings the economic revolution and all that that entails to, to this region. It changes it economically. It changes it physically. Ultimately, it changes it culturally. And, you know, a great deal of sport has been made about, about how how shoddy uh, the Hauk lines were. I mean, that, that's just kind of a longstanding joke. It was much harder than Lewis thought it was gonna be. And he never never transcended his, his limitations. His, his railroads were poorly constructed. And if you, if you look at you know, the testimony before the Railroad Commission, you know, there's, there's ample evidence that, uh, that Lewis never really figured out how to, to, to build railroads. But at the end of the day, that being said, he virtually willed those railroads into existence and he cut them through a region that is as inhospitable as any part of the United States, through the marshes and the, and the lakes and the wetlands and the swamps of Southeast Missouri, Hauk was able to do what nobody else was able to accomplish. 
I think that idea of, of his will is certainly something that you really brought forth in, in sections of the book. You know, the, the first line you mentioned, you know, running between Delta and up to Cape, uh, you know, there, there is a, a, a certainly parts of that of, of your writing there where the reader is wondering, is he going to finish this in time as, as the deadline is coming up? That was so intriguing. And then, as you mentioned, people critiquing his, his lines as being poorly constructed, you know, as you mentioned, you know, running around bends or around uh, obstacles in their path or the, the road dipping as a, as a heavy train goes by. It's certainly very fascinating to think about, you know, the, not only the hard work to build the line, but also the complexity of it as well. Yeah, and it almost it reaches comic proportions. When whenever I talk about uh, the Hulk lines, those always get really good laughs and, and a good reaction, you know, because of the shortcuts that he took. And and Lewis had a habit of surrounding himself with people who didn't really know much more about railroading than he did. And he was so parsimonious. He was so cheap. He was always looking for a way to cut costs. So he's buying things secondhand. He's, he's buying rails secondhand. He's buying other people's scrap. He's buying uh, rolling stock that, that's not really functioning. The first engine that he purchases doesn't go into reverse. So, I mean, he's always trying to do this on, on the cheap. And the joke that, uh, the longstanding joke here is that, that Lewis built those railroads for a nickel. And at that, Hauk would always like to reach into his pocket and pull out a nickel and say, and this is that nickel. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, thinking about Lewis Hauk and, and thinking about how he is remembered today, you know, if someone goes to Cape Girardeau, uh, an obvious one would be Hauk Stadium on, on Southeast Missouri State University's campus. Um, but what is the legacy of Lewis Hauk in the region? How do people remember him and where do his, wh where are the roots from his, from his various ventures still to be found? Well, it's, it's interesting because how uh, was disinterested in sports. Um, the, the stadium was named after him after he had passed away. I mean, Hauk was on the Board of Regents here for 38 years at the university. 36 of those he was president, which is a feat that I, I don't imagine will ever be equaled again. And kind of as a tribute, they, they named that stadium uh, after him. That was his last official act he had purchased that that land i don't know that how would think much of, of that he didn't really didn't show any interest in in sporting events and i i think probably as much as anything this this speaks to to the title of the book uh, missouri railroad pioneer the original title of the book and the working titles when i began was the father of southeast missouri and this was a uh, this was a description that a WPA historian had given uh, Hauk, or a distinction, I should say, in, in the 1930s. And I thought it really captured all that Hauk was, because he was a lawyer and a journalist and an entrepreneur and a regent and a philanthropist and a historian. You know, a rail, the railroading is only part of what he did. Uh, and I thought the father of Southeast Missouri was much more inclusive and had much more descriptive power. And it's funny, when I when I gave the manuscript to the University of Missouri Press, and I said, wow, I love it. There are two, two minor things that we, we should change. One is you got too much information about the building of Academic Hall. You know, that won't be of interest broadly. And the other is you got to get rid of that title. 
because it's not going to Google very well. People won't know how to find it. And we got to get, you know, railroading in there someplace so people can do a Google search for it. And I said, well, you know, I'm really got my heart set on the father of Southeast Missouri. I can't do any better than that. So, you know, you guys just uh, essentially come up with a title. So they did. And that's the title, uh, Missouri uh, Railroad Pioneer. But I think, again, just focusing on the railroads, while it's a fascinating absolutely captivating story not only from a personal level but it it gives folks a sense of you know how the economic revolution actually played out in the united states because hauk is is a wonderful little case study and you can use southeast missouri as a very manageable terrain on which to understand how american industry grew how our economy became sophisticated and how men like Hauk, you know, and he's kind of our little Southeast Missouri version of a Jay Gould or a John Rockefeller. I mean, how these men with, with vision really shaped the economy and really bent history to, to their will in large measure. But anyway, I, I, I don't know. Uh, regionally, there is a, a big mural of, uh, of Lewis Hauk on, uh, on our river wall here. You know, the river wall has these murals that depict the, the defining moments in the region's history. I absolutely love that mural because in it, Hauk is this great towering figure and he's, you know, his muscles are rippling and he's, you know, laying railroad track and he's a larger than life character. You know, Hauk's five, six. I mean, he's a little guy and he never really busies himself with the actual physical labor of, uh, of building the uh, the railroads. But again, I think I would encourage people as far as his legacy to go to to look maybe to the university, to academic hall. I think probably today that is the most tangible uh, element of his legacy. Hauk was instrumental in rebuilding academic hall in the first years of the of the 20th century. And not only is that building magnificent, I mean, it was the largest state building uh, at that time, the, the Missouri Capitol, of course, was was still under construction. So that, that's, that's, that's a huge state building and it's a beautiful building. But it, it permanently located the university here. There, there was a chance when the original building burnt that the, the university, the institution, um, a normal school at the time, would move outside of the region. And how it was committed not only to the economic development of the region, but the cultural uh, development as well. And he knew that uh, the university, to have an institution of higher education here was, was very, very important. And so how, like I said, dedicated himself not only to, to building that permanent structure, but making sure that it was magnificent, you know, to make sure that it was overstated, not just a building, but a magnificent building. And he thought that that would send a message, that that would be a beacon of education and culture that would solidify Southeast Missouri as, as an important part of the state. Well, thank you very much for joining me today, Joel, and uh, sharing about the life of Lewis Houck. Hey, Sean, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri podcast. If you would like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org forward slash our dash Missouri. <laughs>